from field to table and flame to fork. The pursuit of the outdoor connection is ingrained deep within one's spirit. The draw to the flame of the campfire is felt from around the world. Why do we hunt? Pull up a seat. We have a story to tell. Welcome to our campfire. All right, here we are with episode five already of the Campfire Conversations. Uh, the last episode was awesome. That was we had Tana for my hunt. That was pretty. Oh yeah, big ass. You know, Tana has the gift of gab. She's she's very articulate and and she's just so fun to talk to. And and uh, I really enjoyed having that discussion. I think we probably could have talked for hours. Oh, totally could have. Uh, her her perspective on on everything was refreshing, and and that's what when we created uh, I hunt in one campfire and now this podcast was to, to show the stereotypes don't exist uh, as pushed out there. And she, she shows that, right. Uh, Just, she is not what you expect when you think of a hunter being uh, in Vancouver and in the the line of work she's in, just that's not what you expect. And I, I thought that was pretty awesome. And she articulates so very well. Absolutely. And, and, and one of the things that was, you know, pretty profound about all that is the fact that you know, she comes from a very different place than say mm-hmm. you or I do, but we all get it. You know, we, we can have this conversation and we all see the same things, you know, we all, we all, we've all come to value the same things in, in a very similar way. That's and right. I think that really does speak to the, you know, that, that uh, sort of environmental ethos and, and mm-hmm. just that connection that, that, hunters hunters uh gravitate towards because right. you know you can you as soon as somebody's hunting like that you can you can have a talk to them you can communicate and you know what you're each other's talking about yeah yeah you can talk about anything except what hunting means to you right that's the yeah. one thing that none of us can ever quite articulate right no matter how many hunters we talk to in the world and where they're from and how they grew up and what they do for a living everybody's reasons are different and they can't quite articulate the reason that pushes them outside and that's what I love about this series and the, the chance to do the campfire conversations now is we can ask, ask people from all walks of life, what draws them to the outdoors. And we're going to hear something different from every single person and every single one of them will have that little bit of a pause as they try and form the words. And they'll always say the same thing. I, it's hard to say, it's hard to describe. That's well, and I think that's, great. Yeah, it is. I think part of that is because it's, it's it's as much a feeling as it is anything else, right? It's as See, much. You did it it's, right there. It, well, that's it. Right it, there, trying to it, describe exactly. It's like it, it's not. It's not an easy thing to just to say. This mm-hmm. is why hunting point A, B, point B, point C, blah blah. It's like yeah, you can get into the technical aspects. Say, well, I you know I enjoy the meat or I enjoy the adventure, but it's sort of all those things together. And then there's something else. There's something beyond that. I don't know. Sort of like in this existential connection that I, I don't know that many people have actually been able to articulate well enough to Mm -hmm. you know to communicate properly but it's there for everybody yeah i uh i I read something the other day that uh there's it's in a gene that they're they're starting to figure out that it's in somebody's gene they're born with it well i thought that was pretty cool you know our next guest eli hall he's he's my primary hunting partner and interestingly enough we talked about this on our last hunt talking about like you know, why, why there's that big appeal. Uh, and, and one of the conclusions we came to, uh, is that you're actually just truly being human. You're doing something a human does. 
You know, like you think about your day-to-day life and say you're on a computer all day and you're, you know, you're doing your spreadsheets or whatever job you have, or you're serving customers, this, that. That's things that people do in our, in our culture and in, in, in our particular state of civilization. Uh, you know, those are the things you have to do to get by. But we've kind of just invented those things a lot of times, right? Like they're just, they're just systems and stuff that we've just kind of decided that we all agree will exist and we'll, we'll pursue them. But when you're actually out hunting, you're doing something that's just so much deeper than that. It's something that's so human. It's so inherent to the mm-hmm. species that it, yeah, it's like you're actually acting out the, the behaviors of your species. I don't that's know. Right. That, does that make sense? Like, no, again, it, again I'm having a hard time articulating it's true, it. Because this is something that has caused humans to exist to the state Absolutely. we're at now from when we first arrived on the earth. No, no matter which way you look at uh, creation, uh, uh, human beings have hunted since the dawn of time. Absolutely. The, that's to that's exist. what defines human beings. That's That's and, been our that's primary right. pursuit for for probably a million years or more, really. It, you know, it, different it, species of humans, right? Like it's just exactly. it's what we do. As soon as we started to to, to evolve or whatever showed up, whatever that, whatever you well, want to say where we came from. That's right. right? Well, that's like I said, that's why, you know, that's why humans can throw a baseball. You know? Exactly. <laughs> well, some yeah. can. Some well, can that's hang. right. Yeah. At least the In potential years, for some, right? Myself. Yeah, I, I probably couldn't either, but. Uh, oh, I'd hurt myself. Yeah. And our next our guest uh, for this episode is, is fascinating because, I mean, yes, he's a hunter. That's a big part of his life. But, I mean, he's so much more. This guy is, is pretty impressive. I've gotten to know Eli Hardcore. over the years. And, yeah, like, <clears throat> he's the real deal. He's uh, he's he's humble. So, a lot of times it's, you know, and there's guys out there like that that are really humble. And, you know, they're not out there blowing their own horn. He's not on social media. You know, he's not one of those guys. Mm-hmm. But he's just done so many things. And, and we barely scraped the surface during this oh, podcast God, no. and the stuff he's done, but he's, he's the real deal. He's a truly accomplished mountaineer. He's, he's, I mean, he's a great outdoorsman. Um, like he's one of those guys that there's not a lot of stuff in the outdoors he hasn't done. And, uh, like I say, you'd, you'd never know it because he's a humble guy, but, uh, yeah, he's, 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 uh, very accomplished. Yeah. No kidding. Like how many people do you know that? Well, other than Eli that <laughs> go out with the intention of hiking 3000 miles. That's that, right. Yeah. It, and, like, I mean, he's climbed the highest peak in North America. He attempted Everest. He's uh, like, you know, he's just done all these things that are just, just beyond what most people, even pretty hardcore outdoorsy guys do, you know what I mean? Or gals. Like it's just, yeah. it's, it's sort of that next level. Yeah. I think it's pretty awesome the way we, we dive a little bit into his greatest accomplishments, what he feels his greatest accomplishments are, uh, in mountaineering and, and in hiking. And we get into a little bit of the equipment he, his must haves and why it's important to have luxury items and uh, what he's up to in the future. I I thought it was a really, really cool conversation there for the hour we had him. Yeah, exactly. I think, you know, we, we probably could have like honed in on one single thing and talked about it. And he would have had a lot of stuff to say about any, anything we wanted Mm. to talk about. You know, we did kind of dance around a little bit because there's just so many places you can go with this guy. And, oh, yeah. uh, you know, so many conversations to have, but, uh, yeah, I think there was some in- really interesting information and, uh, yeah, if, uh, yeah, I mean, and if, if anybody has any questions after listening to this podcast about the, you know, that they, they, they want directed toward Eli, you can let us know and we'd be happy to pass on mm-hmm. the message and get the you know answers back to them. Yeah. Get a hold of us, social media, email us info at one campfire.com and we, we can get, uh, any of our guests, uh, 
your your questions, comments. So enjoy the listen. This is episode five with Eli Hall. The perception of hunting, you know, has changed. It's our duty now, our responsibility as hunters, to change it back. And we've spent the last few decades trying, you know, espousing that that message, preaching that message about wildlife conservation. You know, we've it's fallen on deaf ears. All of our attempts. I think what what we have to do is is maybe uh, appeal to the emotional side or the visceral side. We have to tell our story. We know what we are. We know how deeply we care about wildlife. It's just the people out there that are, that are, you know, voting to get rid of hunting. They don't understand our stories. Sometimes we, we have to translate it to something that they understand. Welcome, Eli Hall. Thanks for taking the time to join us on uh, our Campfire Conversations here. How's it going tonight? Good. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and we've got uh, Steve as well. So, uh, you know, the regular host crew here. So, uh, mm-hmm. anyway, uh, I know you're uh, a very accomplished uh, mountaineer, backpacker, skier, just about anything in the backcountry here. So, you know, this is going to be a great opportunity to pick your brain on on some of the knowledge that you've acquired over the last several years. Uh, but before we get into that, I think you need to tell the several million viewers we have how incredible your your fortune has been over the last week with your uh, your heli skiing opportunity. That's a story worth telling, I think. Yeah, yeah, I definitely want to hear that one. I got a text about it. Oh, it couldn't make last week. And I'm like, yeah, okay, whatever. We'll reschedule. Then he sends me what I'm like. All right. We got to hear this. Yeah, fly at it. <laughs> yeah, I did have to reschedule, and and uh, thanks for being accommodating. I happened to be skiing by myself on Monday morning at Whitewater, and I almost didn't go skiing that day because I had some chores to do at home. But I thought, you know, if I'm going to be installing a new toilet in my bathroom, which is what I had to do, might as well go ski for a few runs and help keep my sanity. So I went skiing by myself, and I ended up riding up the chairlift, uh, and happened to ride up with this other guy who we started chatting and he was coming up ski whitewater for a couple of days and then go on a heli ski trip for four days. And we, I ended up showing him around whitewater. His first run was terrible. Cause he skied, he skied a, an aspect that had a bunch of sun and then it refroze and was icy. So I invited him to ski along with me. We had a fun morning and, and, uh, got along really well. And at the end of the morning I had to leave and I was wishing him, good luck on his, his, uh, heli ski trip. And he said, you know, I think we might have an extra seat. A guy had to bail. And, uh, and at that time I was thinking that I would have to pay for this heli ski trip. So I, it, you know, wasn't something I was very interested in, but I said, Oh, sure. Thanks. You know, and we exchanged phone numbers and then he texted me later and said it was a free seat and it was in fact available for a four day, four night heli ski trip at a lodge in BC. So, uh, it was very generous of them, but I, uh, I had an amazing time. The, the, the way it worked out is the heli ski company already got paid for the seat. And then the guy that couldn't make it got refunded through his travel insurance. So nobody was out anything and there was this available seat. So I went along and had amazing time. Yeah. So it was very nice of them to have me along. 
Yeah, I think that's worth a reschedule. I don't even ski and I do it. Like, yeah, crap. <laughs> yeah I, I go, I just go to hang out at the lodge and eat the food by the sound. Yeah, exactly. I oh, literally the food grew up amazing. I grew up in Vancouver staring at the North Shore Mountains and I've never strapped on a snowboard or a set of skis. Well, it sounds like it's time then. <laughs> yeah, I'm in <laughs> Prince George now. So, oh, okay. Yeah. So, yeah, there, we, we got uh, Powder King not too far up the road, well, highway, about an hour and a bit. And yeah, I hear good things about that, but yeah, it just never really appealed. But when JP said, oh, heli skiing, I'm like, oh, helicopter ride, free food, lodge, I'm in. Yeah. Yeah. It's too no, good to be true, honestly. And no doubt. Be able to get in a helicopter and have them fly you to the top of a mountain and then ski down over wow. and over. So I, I felt very fortunate. It was a great trip. And I can say from having known Eli for quite a few years that it really, that opportunity could not have happened to somebody that's more passionate about skiing. Uh, I mean, I know Eli's a extremely proficient skier. He's probably at the expert level. And uh, yeah, I mean, couldn't have happened to a better guy. Well, thank you. Yeah, it was quite an adventure, actually. So I, after skiing nine of the last 10 days, though, I, I uh, was actually ready to come back to work this week. Yeah, it, it does get Which like doesn't that. doesn't happen doesn't that it? often. No, <laughs> no, I, I know how you feel. Sometimes you're, you've had enough of a break, you know, it's ready to get back. Yeah. yeah. Especially when you start thinking, oh, my mortgage payment's coming out. I better get back. Yeah, to exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, all right. So in addition to skiing, I mean, you're an accomplished mountaineer. Uh, I, I actually, I have a little interesting story here. This goes way back to, to, to the beginning of the relationship that Eli and I have. I was looking for an associate to join me in my practice and, uh, you know, I had several optometrists inquire and had a, had brought a couple up to Nelson to check them out. And so they could check the practice out and see if there'd be a good fit. And, and one of those prospective associates was Eli and we, we chatted and he ended up coming up with his wife. And I think, I don't know if it was the very first time I met you or after I finally offered you the position, but you had said, that's that's great if I'm remembering this correctly, but you know I just want to let you know I'm going to be taking, or or no you'd yeah you're going to take like four months or something to do Everest, um before you could start was that it or had you already started then you took off but I I, I know we had a little Selkirk Eye Care flag made for you to take up there with yeah you. no so yeah I, that's right I I interviewed right before my trip to Mount Everest so I was uh, I was leaving the previous job that I had and then looking for another opportunity. And so it worked out coming up here to, to Nelson with you. And <clears throat> so, yeah, I, I took a time off, took a bit of time off between the two jobs that I had. And we had a little Selkirk eye care flag made up for me to take, take along wow. on the trip. Yeah. No, I guess it wasn't four months. Ago. How long were you gone for that trip? It was a while. Yeah. It was a couple months, including couple travel months, right. and everything yeah. else. Yeah. Wow. That, that yeah. sounds like a story I, I definitely want to dig into, but you, you said you came to Nelson. Where were you, where are you from? Let's, let's dig back a little bit to who you are and where you came from. Well, I grew up in Montana. I was born and raised in Montana and uh, grew up in Helena, Montana, and then went to my undergraduate university in Bozeman at Montana State. And, uh, and then I went to optometry school for four years in Oregon, in the Portland area, Forest Grove. And my first year working as an optometrist, I worked in Aspen, Colorado for a year and then came up to Nelson after that. And I've been here 11 years now. So why the jump from there to there to all of a sudden you're, you're Nelson. Like what was the, the progression there? Was he just looking for a, a person to hang out with on, uh, on the slopes and you ran into JP or did, was it just 
that was it, that the position was open. Yeah, well, I it was skiing mainly, I guess, is the the easy answer. I was leaving Aspen, which is a a nice ski town, and I was looking for another place to live with good skiing, and saw the opportunity here and came up and checked it. I'd read about Nelson and Powder Magazine, which is a ski magazine, and uh, never been here before. So we flew up. My wife and I flew up and checked it out, and. Mm-hmm. Seemed great, so we made the move and been here ever since. Well, that's that's I've eleven been, years ago now. That's unbelievable. Wow. Yeah, yeah. I've been to Nelson once, and it was pretty awesome. We were there for uh, the BC Wildlife Federation AGM. God, was that five, six years ago? Whatever it was, seven years ago, something like that. And yeah, flew in into Cranbrook, I think it was, and uh, drove in, or and then we drove all the way back. We we left Nelson at like six in the morning and drove all the way back to Prince George. So it was, that was one hell of a drive. That is a big drive. Yeah. yeah. There, there was, there was three of us. Uh, one was driving, I was co-pilot and we had the navigator and, uh, the DJ in the back seat, and all she did was sleep, which is pretty typical, right? So yeah. <laughs> the easiest position to be in. So that draw the mountains, uh, has that been, been something that's, uh, been with you since childhood or is that a new thing or late in life thing or how that work? You know, it, I guess it's it's really been something that's with me a long time. I grew up in, in Helena, which is in a nice valley that's surrounded by mountains. There's a local ski hill there. And so I grew up skiing and, and fishing and hunting. And uh, my dad took us backpacking at an early age as well. Got us out camping in the mountains. So, yeah, it's just sort of always been something I've been interested in. That's that's yeah. I I still don't. Uh, I, I I should preface this by saying I've been to Washington State. I've landed in Oregon, and then transferred out an hour later, and I've been to Florida. So I don't really have uh, an idea. Like wh- when I think of Montana, like I, I I follow people on Instagram and all that. I, I think heat and like almost like desert. So am I not accurate in thinking that? Or well, I mean. Montana varies a lot. It's a pretty big state. So Northwestern Montana borders British Columbia. So it's very similar to, to BC. Um, but then, you know, you go further East and then you're out East of the continental divide and the prairies kind of like Alberta. And then, you know, you sort of get into the more Saskatchewan kind of territory in Eastern Montana. So you have prairies in the East and then you've got the Rocky mountains, um, in the West basically. So yeah, it varies quite a bit. I was kind of in southwestern Montana, so we we're okay. east of the Continental Divide, but still up in the mountains. Okay, yeah. So just pulling it up on a quick Google here. Okay, now I see where you are. Now. Yeah, yeah. It's totally not what I expected. It, as you said, does look like a, a mix of BC, Alberta, and Saskatchewan all in one state. That's pretty crazy. So when you, you moved to Nelson, JP said that was where you both said that was what, 11 years ago. What was your first draw to the, what was your first experience of the outdoors there? Like uh, where did you head and what did you do? That's a good question. I moved up here in June. So, you know, at first I guess it was just sort of getting my bearings and moving in. And uh, I just got back from a big expedition. And so it was uh, quite the transition. It was, when I was on Mount Everest, I would meet people and they asked me where I'm from. And I'd have to tell them, well, when I left, I lived in Aspen, Colorado. But when I get back, I'm going to be living in, in British Columbia. Um, so my wife uh, was 
was very accommodating. She sort of moved up here without me and was living in a hotel when I got here. Um, so it was, yeah, it was quite the transition, but yeah, once I got up here, you know, it was summertime activities, going to the beach and camping and going for some hikes. Well, I, I remember, I think it was that summer you moved up. That was that extreme, <clears throat> that was the extremely wet summer. Do you remember that? Uh, was that the first summer that it rained pretty much every day? That was when the Johnson's landing slide occurred. Yeah. That, yeah. That, I, I think that was, that was either your first or your second summer. I can't remember, but it might've been that first one. Cause I remember being a little bit concerned. You guys might decide to take off cause it was, the weather was so horrible yeah. that summer. <laughs> cause it, it literally, I mean, the mountains were just completely saturated. It had just, it had rained so much that, that summer. And we had a pretty catastrophic slide at the North end of Kootenai Lake that ended up killing some people like a mudslide. Uh, and it was just something else. But I, I remember that it was cold too. It never got very warm that summer. And yeah, that was either the first or the, your second summer. But uh, yeah, yeah, I can't did, remember did, actually. Make I think that might have been my, yeah, I think that might have been my second summer. But I okay, could that could have been the second. That. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, I do remember moving up here. I tried to bring my hunting rifle and I think I brought a one shotgun and one rifle uh, up here. And I got to the border and the, uh, well, actually, I moved up here first and then I left my, my firearms in Montana with my folks. And then after living here for a while, they were coming up to visit. So I drove down to meet them at the border so I could bring across one 12 gauge and my 30 out six hunting rifle and driving to the border. Uh, the gas station on the way was closed. It was late at night. And so I was running low on gas. I ended up crossing the border so I can get my rifle because I wanted to, you know, I didn't want to have my parents have to deal with that. And then I ended up running out of gas uh, in my vehicle because the gas station was closed. And then we get to the border and I'm in their vehicle. And the uh, the border services agent says that they, you know, they have to run the serial number. And it came up that my hunting rifle was they, they alleged that my hunting rifle was stolen in Detroit, Michigan in 1971, which was 10 years before I was even born. So they had to confiscate my hunting rifle and keep it in the, in the locker there until they could sort it out. And uh, so anyway, I eventually got it back. I think they probably called the Detroit police and said they have a a report of a stolen bolt action hunting rifle in 1971. And they, they gave it their utmost attention, I'm sure. Um, yeah. But uh, <laughs> but after all that, I ended up getting the hunting rifle back just in time for hunting season. And and then we went out, and I ended up getting lucky enough to shoot a a nice uh, six point bull elk that fall. So it was worth the battle getting that hunting rifle up here. But that was one of my early memories of coming up here is getting my rifle taken away and then getting it back yeah, but- just in time to go hunting. I know that that's funny too, because I I was telling Eli that it took me about five years of of hunting elk in the in the Kootenai sort of to get my first bull. Cause I started out knowing nothing about elk hunting at all. And, you know, and I was just basically saying, you know, don't don't have your expectations too high. And it took me years and you know, it's it's tough hunting, which it really is. And uh literally in the first hour, what Eli and I went out together the first hour he had a bull down. And I thought, wow, <laughs> like I shouldn't have said anything. <laughs> yeah, I shouldn't have said that's easy. <laughs> but unfortunately, he's learned since then that it's pretty tough. Yeah. But, uh, oh, yeah. yeah. I've I've not been averaging one bull per hour since then. No, no, <laughs> that's for sure. Yeah. Wow. But uh, so one, yeah. So so yeah, you're up here in Canada now, and and uh, 
you know, we're working together and I know like you've done lots of, lots of, you know, expedition style uh, trips out in the mountains uh, since then. Uh, and obviously before we met too. So it's been a big part of your life. And, you know, one of the, the things that's really intrigued me and that, that you had sort of educated me on early on uh, in our friendship was your ultralight backpacking. Uh, your wife and you had been doing uh, the Continental Divide Trail, and uh, and you were, you were doing that that the the legs of that route with your ultralight gear. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. We we have been working on section hiking the Continental Divide Trail. So the Continental Divide Trail runs from the Canadian border down to Mexico, and uh, <clears throat> it's over three thousand miles long, I think. But we. Uh, so we've just been doing it in, in bits and pieces. Usually we'll go down and, well, it's been on pause recently because we have two young children now. But uh, I think we're actually going to start picking that up again this summer. we talked to my folks. The kids are old enough now that I think they'll be happy to be at their grandparents' house for a week in the summer. Um, so, yeah, we, we usually would go down and do a, about a 100-mile stretch at a time over eight or nine days. And, and the fascinating part is like, like with your ultralight, ba- your ultralight set up for backpacking, how much would your total kit be like backpack, food, fuel, gear, like everything that you, you need? We, we tried to go fairly light. I mean, there are people that, that get really crazy about it too, that, you know, can go much lighter than what we did as well. But, uh, our base weight was about 11 pounds, which is everything but food and water and fuel, basically. So, um, so just for, for people that are listening to this, uh, my backpack, which is, which is designed for packing heavy loads, weighs about 10 pounds with nothing in it. So 11 pounds with everything is, is unbelievably light. Yeah, that's insane. I, uh, I did my fly-in this year and I think I was... 63 65 pounds for for 10 days that's 11 that's nuts so I, I can't so even fathom food that. so food goes on top of the 11 pounds right and water and and, 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 and water fuel but but water of course is just like you you there's water sources along the way i imagine so you can yeah sure just just fill up as you go so what like as far as food goes what would your food weight be for a say a, a nine ten day trip like that usually for those trips, we would do a pound and a half of food per day was sort of the the number we would shoot for. Um, so I think, you know, all in, we were probably starting off, we were probably about 25 pounds. And then that weight would go down as we would go into the trip. Yeah. I mean, I, I think for a lot of people listening to this, that's just, that's just unbelievable. Like for me, it is. I mean, 25 pounds with your food yeah. and in all your gear you need for nine days plus or whatever on the trail uh you know that's kind of unreal so like like what are the things like when you're when you're uh setting up say for people that are interested in getting into ultralight backpack or just want to lighten their their regular gear what are sort of the key things you have to hone in on to to shed weight like what are you looking at looking for like i'm sure there's just sort of tricks of the trade for that sort of thing yeah i mean you can get obsessive about everything cutting your toothbrush in half and drilling holes in it and, you know, things like that. But I think the the easiest place to cut down on weight are your, your biggest items, like your backpack, your sleeping bag, your shelter, your sleeping pad. 
So we would use a really lightweight backpack that's a frameless pack. And we'd use a three-quarter length foam pad that would fold up. So rather than rolling, it would fold up into sections. And you could sort of use that as a bit of a frame sheet inside your frameless pack. Um, and then just get a really lightweight down sleeping bag. And, uh, and then for a shelter, that was the one thing we sort of splurged on. We actually had a regular tent with aluminum poles. And it was a very light tent. I think it was about four pounds for the whole tent and fly. Uh, but we'd split that up in half. So it was two pounds per person, but you can go a lot lighter if you want to sleep under a tarp or something, but it's kind of nice having something that's has mesh. So you don't have to worry about bugs and, and uh, it's very rainproof. So, so yeah, those are the, the biggest ways to cut down on the weight. So, now, as far as food goes, uh, I, like I know there's lots of uh, food options for backpacking, a lot of freeze-dried type stuff, you know, to keep your food down to a pound and a half a day. What what typically would your, you know, your food consist of? These days, I'm much more of a fan of the, the freeze-dried meals for dinner because they're so simple and lightweight and you can get them that are vacuum sealed so they don't take up as much space as some of the other ones used to. Uh, but for a lot of those trips, we would use minute rice, you know, that didn't take a lot of fuel to cook. And we got some dried tofu things that aren't all that tasty to be honest, but they're very lightweight and have mm -hmm. a lot of protein. Um, some, uh, that was kind of our, one of our go-tos is we'd have some minute rice and dried tofu and, and some powdered coconut milk with kind of a curry paste. That was one of the, one of our favorites. So how would you like, is, you, would you have basically sort of three meals a day, like wake up, have something to eat, stop sort of midday, have lunch and then supper? Or how do you sort of the same as normal eating patterns when you're doing that kind of backpacking? Usually we wouldn't have a real big lunch. It would just sort of be snacking on the go, eating nuts and jerky and, you know, chocolate or something uh, throughout the day. But uh, yeah, usually we'd wake up and have either a protein bar. Or I didn't, I'm not a big fan of cooking things in the morning because because it takes more time and fuel and stuff. So we'd either have a protein bar for breakfast or some granola with powdered milk, something like that. And then have a, have a hot dinner at night. Yeah. That's what I found with us on the, on the fly in is you, you wake up in the morning, you, one of you boils a uh, bunch of water for everybody. And then you're eating the freeze dried and then, then it's snacking all day. Uh, yeah. Hand, handful of nuts, a chunk of pepperoni. And you, you, when you're, you're on the move, you're, you're not really hungry is, kind of counterintuitive you think you would be when you're moving but it's not until you're actually sitting down at the end of the day really okay i need something substantial to to take uh to take with us so it was good uh yeah so what what was your favorite uh food to have there with you like uh, something that you could just grab and go that you'd say you know what i'm doing this again i'm bringing this yeah i don't know i mean I think the main thing is just having good snack foods for during the day. Because like you said, you don't want to sit down and have a big meal at lunch. Because then you just feel heavy, you know, and it's hard to get moving again. And you don't want to take all that time to stop and, and eat. So having having palatable snack foods, I think, is a big part of it. Because then you, you're burning a lot of calories, of course, just hiking all day, every day. So you want to be able to eat enough. So having jerkies and good trail mixes and, and uh, you know, spicy sort of bar mixes. That's mm -hmm. kind of one of the things I like. Um, so yeah, just having good, 
good snack food that you can eat enough of. Yeah, I found uh, like it was my first fly in, and from chatting and from all, all the guys and and girls that have done the fly ins, figuring out their tips and tricks, I always ask the same thing: What was your favorite thing? And everybody said snacks. So brought chocolate bars, like Snickers were were a staple, and uh, Stinger waffles. I don't know if you've tried them. I've they're, never tried that. No, they're basically if, if you go to Costco and you ever tried this, they're called Stroop waffles. Basically, they look like a waffle. They're about two inches, three inches around and a centimeter thick. And they're chewy and they're nothing but calories and sugar. And they were delicious. And, and do you cook them or do you just eat no, them cold? No, you, you could eat them cold. But uh, one so of the would you have well, that for the, breakfast or just when you're snacking? Just, a, just a snack. Just oh, yeah. a snack. They were great. Uh, you could put them over your, your mug of hot liquid and it would kind of melt. So you could melt them a little bit or they they were good cold. They were good that frozen. sounds pretty good. That they does. were good. I'll, I'll, yeah. I'll have to send you a link. And they were, they were, they were shocking, shockingly good. And uh, Stinger also makes um, like little uh, gummy candies like jujube type things. I have Same seen thing. those. Yeah. They were delicious. Absolutely delicious. And it, you, 10, 12 candies in a little bag. We were sharing them for three people. They were that filling and that tasty, like a d- half a dozen candies between yeah. two people, three people. It's nuts. It's good to have tasty snacks. out. Yeah. There. Yeah. Definitely. It, it would definitely uh, give you something to work towards like an hour into it. You're like, okay, I know I can feel it in my pocket. Here you go, and you pop one in, and it's like it takes that edge right off. And you got, as you said, something to look forward to. Yeah, that's that's interesting thinking about food because I, I think you know, for me, I've been doing you know sort of expedition style trips for a lot of years now. You know, I still bring food I don't really like sometimes. You know, you, you, before when you're planning, you think it makes sense. Then when you go out there, you just don't want to eat it. And uh, at least that's me. And I know Eli always seems to have a much more varied diet out there than I do when we go on our trips together. But uh, I still find for me, I'm uh, food is still an area that I feel like I'm a newbie, honestly. Like, you know, I, I always bring kind of the same stuff and it's never very good other than like, you know, now that we're doing some, you know, fly in trips where, where the weight restrictions are far less, you know, we're bringing some better mm-hmm. foods like for, for camp. You know, but the, the food yeah. on the trail, but I, I'm like you though too, Steve, like I find for me, like if I do a, you know, a 10 day trip, I usually come back, you know, six, seven, eight pounds lighter because yeah. I am not very hungry half the time. I just feel like mm-hmm. I'm just in this zone and this mode. And, uh, you know, other than when, you know, something like spam is being cooked, you know, to <laughs> on a bag or yeah. something like that, and then I get a little hungry, but yeah, for the most part, it's, it's not what a person expects, at least for me. Yeah, um, yeah. These, these yeah. stinger, these stinger waffles. I'm looking at them right now. Uh, they're 30 grams weight each, but they're 150 calories a piece. Wow. And and so that's quite the the bang for the buck, so to speak. And they're all natural, which is great, right? Uh, uh, they're 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 honey for the, these flavors here, and they were they were delicious. They which were, is, they were which is really nice easy. if you're you know if you're really you know, out doing the grind and you're going up and down the mountains. I mean, mm-hmm. you go through energy so rapidly. It's nice to have oh, something yeah. to, to get the reserves back up yeah. a little bit. Yeah. A, 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 a box of 16 is 40 bucks to your door shipped. And wow. if you have, if you have one a day, you got a, you, you plenty there, right? Yeah. And yeah. Zero trans fat, zero cholesterol. Cause that's the type of stuff you care about when you're on a hike. Right. But <laughs> they were delicious and they're definitely going to be uh, in my pack again. 
That's a good tip. Yeah, I'll have to look those up for next uh, fall. So for the lightweight, because um, just one more question or, or a comment. Obviously, to keep your, your weight down like that, you don't want to be packing, you know, two liters of fuel or something. You're probably keeping your fuel down to fairly minimal volume and, and using it sparingly. So you're saying the minute rice, something that just takes a very short period of time to to hydrate, I guess, is the key. That's to that. right. And then things that don't need heating at all, I guess. So Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So this is interesting. I think, you know, for a lot of us who've done quite a bit of backpacking and stuff, we're, we're fairly familiar with the different ideas of, you know, how to, you know, pack food and what to take, things like that, at least to some degree. But, uh, uh, you know, this is good information because I think for somebody just starting out, y- you don't necessarily think of these things and, and what makes sense to bring. And I remember when I really started getting into the big backpacking is really when I started guiding, uh, up north and and uh, my very first trip was a, a 10-day mountain goat trip and i had this i think it was it was a big old 80 liter outbound pack but they're cheap packs and they're, they're not made for heavy loads and uh my very first trip i literally was i mean such an idiot right such a greenhorn i i had uh you know full tube of toothpaste you know all kinds of heavy stuff right just like that's just an example just it was so heavy and you know after the first day i i realized how important it is to only take what you really need you know because when you start lugging that stuff uphill it you know things that you thought you really needed after about four or five hours at 30 degrees you're Mm -hmm. you're 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 realizing you didn't really need it after all yeah well that's right i mean i think that's the the main point is that going as light as possible isn't just for its own sake, you know, it's not so that you can tell people how light your backpack is. The point is to enjoy yourself. And when you're out there hiking all day and you have a 50 pound pack versus a 25 pound pack, you're just, you're going to be miserable all day hiking with 50 pounds until you get to camp and set up. But if you have a 20 pound or a 15 pound pack, you can enjoy yourself hiking all day. And, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, the, the whole experience is just a lot nicer that way. Yeah, I, I definitely did my research beforehand and I I must have bent 30, 40 people's ears, okay, and asked the same questions of the same people over and over to see if I could get any sort of patterns on on uh, answers to, to glean as much information. And one of the things that was, uh, well, there, there was three things that were very, very common from everybody I talked to. One, you need good boots because if you got... Your, if your feet are angry with you, you're going to be the most miserable son of a bitch there is on the face of the earth. And especially if your feet get angry with you day one into the hunt or hike. And two, you need to have a good sleeping bag. I had a great sleeping bag, but I was still cold at night just because of, uh, well, you guys dealt with the same sort of weather we did uh, up in that area this year. Uh, so you, you need that good bag. And uh, the other one, you need to be comfortable at night when you're sleeping. Good cot or a mattress type thing because if you're not resting well again it goes back to tying in your feet and the warm bag you're you're just miserable right you you can go a couple of days without food you can find water just about everywhere up in northern bc but if if you're not comfortable you're you're miserable and you're having uh you're you're putting yourself and your your hunting party your hiking party at risk right because you start to become a liability there i agree with that i think you know being able to stay warm and dry are key uh, and be able to sleep well too. I think, you know, not sleeping well, uh, catches up to a person really, really quickly on a, on a, any kind of an expedition, whether it be a hiking trip or a, mm-hmm. you know, any kind of backpack trip or hunting trip. And so, 
you know, I've, I've gotten to the point and I think like Eli is right there with me because we do a lot of these trips together is our, our base camps are the opposite of ultralight. Like we, we do set up, I mean, they're a lot lighter than some people's, I think. Yeah. But you know, they, they, you know, they're, they're, they're very, very comfortable. You know, we've got little, we have like ultralight cots and stuff. There's a very light, small cots that don't weigh very much, but we still have a cot. Like I don't like sleeping on the ground anymore. The cot's just so much nicer and Mm -hmm. I can sleep so much better. And, and I feel, you know what, the little things to make yourself more comfortable and, and warm and dry, uh, just can completely change the experience for a person. I mean, I, I've had times too where I've been out with the this, where the sleeping bag didn't match the weather. It was just just too light, and you know you're you're getting little bits of sleep here and there, and you're curled up in the fetal position trying to trap your body heat, and you know you're shivering, and and uh, you know all of a sudden it's starting to get light in the morning, and you realize you've hardly slept at all, and you got a headache, and it's oh, it's it, it just you got to have the right gear for the conditions you're going to be in in order to make it an enjoyable experience. Otherwise it's just survival. Yeah. Uh, And you know, these ultralight backpacks that, that I'm referring to are for summertime backpacking without, you know, you're not hunting in the fall and, uh, I wear running shoes instead of boots and you don't need a lot of warm clothes. You're not carrying a spotting scope and a rifle and, and, uh, extra layers of down, you know, so that, that allows you to get by really lightweight like that in the summer but my hunting backpacks are a lot heavier than that you know for all those reasons plus you need a burlier backpack to be able to pack out 80 pounds of meat if you are lucky enough to have that problem as well so you know there the the gear that you bring really depends on what kind of mission you're you're trying to accomplish yeah exactly and it's uh, it's it's important to as you say know the season you're going in and what what any kind of weather that you could uh unforeseen walk into right i imagine middle of the summer you could still on on that trail run into uh snow at some elevations right and that's that's something you got to be prepared for and you, you can never be too prepared and yeah going back to the the base camp thing we we camped within i'd say 400 meters of the lake we were dropped off at because we knew we were going to be having a base camp we 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 brought fire logs so we could have a fire every night and uh, we had an ultralight tent and an ultralight stove, but it's a damn good thing. We had those, uh, those logs. We were just a little bit extra prepared. We had like two hour, three hour fire logs that we would plug in at the end of the night or shave a little bit off to get started because it, it pissed rain and we had snow for, we ended up uh, coming out on day 13 because we were supposed to come out on day 10, but just because of the weather is you guys were up there, right? I think you guys flew in after we came out, but yeah, it was, uh, unexpected, but thankfully we'd, we'd prepared that little bit of extra as you, as you talk about to, to be ready for those, uh, those conditions. And cause you hear about it every year, people go get lost. They, uh, they don't come home. They, they there's deaths everywhere and people are stranded and search and rescue and, has to get involved but yeah you you need to be prepared for the conditions that you see and especially the ones you don't see yeah i I agree with that i think like eli's point too like the you know you can go ultra ultra light when the weather's good in the middle of the summer and and you don't need a lot of extra gear and extra clothing things like that but yeah when you get into the the you know shoulder season type trips whether it be spring or fall you could have i mean in the mountains you can have cold snowy weather at any time but you know you get into latter september especially in the northern rockies i mean you can get down to minus 15 or 20 in places and like if you're not mm-hmm. prepared for that it, it could be deadly for sure so 
person definitely has to be prepared for the extremes. Um, oh, totally. Yeah. So, yeah. So, I mean, there's just so much to talk about when it comes to this sort of thing. And, you know, one of the things I like to talk to while we have you on here is some of his, you know, speaking of these expeditions with, you know, pretty challenging uh, conditions is some of the, uh, the, uh, the big mountain expeditions you've done in North America here, Eli. Uh, can you, can you kind of give us some, you know, some uh, stories regarding some of the mountains you've climbed? I know you've, you've, you've bagged some of the higher peaks on the continent. Well, the, the first peak I ever climbed was Granite Peak in Montana, which is the highest peak in Montana. And my brother and I did a, our first backpack trip with just the two of us uh, and, and, and without our parents when we were, I think I was 16 or 17 and he was two years younger than me. And it was about a 50 or 60 mile backpack trip. And uh, at the highest point of that backpack trip, we could look across and see Granite Peak. And it was really a big, impressive peak. And so we we made the goal that year that we we're going to come back and we we're going to climb Granite Peak. So we, we learned how to rock climb and use ropes and rappel. And the next year we came back and did it. And it was, uh, it was quite the journey. Actually, we, we talked to a guy at a climbing shop and he either had never done it or he was really sandbagging, uh, when he told us what to expect. And he said that from your, from your base camp, which was a long trek, even to get into there, he said it was, it would take three hours to make it to the summit and back and it ended up taking us 18. And so we, uh, we each brought one water bottle and two or three granola bars and like a little, you know, rain jacket. And we were thinking it was just going to be this quick jaunt up there. And we got a little bit sidetracked. We had a little bit of route finding difficulties that probably wasted a few hours, but, but nonetheless, it was a, uh, it was a full day trip and we were pretty young. We had very little experience of that sort of thing at the time. And, uh, so we, we ended up getting lucky enough that we made it up there and got back. I think I opened a little can of Vienna sausages when I got back to the camp and just ate those and uh, dipped my water in some some glacier runoff that was flowing by our tent, just drank it right out of the bottle and then collapsed to sleep. So that was the first trip we had. We learned a lot of lessons on that trip, learned them the hard way. But uh, yeah, then after that, we went and climbed Mount Rainier and then we went up and climbed Mount Denali in Alaska. That was a big expedition. We loaded up our two-wheel drive Ford F-150 and towed our tent trailer up there and spent the summer in Alaska. And, and, uh, we had quite the experience there. We, we had a, we set aside a month to climb the mountain, which is fairly typical for about a four week expedition. Now, now how, what's the, what's the, uh, what's the uh, elevation of the mountain? 20,000 feet, 20,320 feet, if I'm remembering correctly. Now what's the, what's the death zone? That's, that's, is it, that's over that, right? Or is that, what is Yeah. The, the death zone, they, they typically refer to as above 8,000 meters, which is about 26,000 feet. Okay. So yeah, you won't find that in North America. Right. So, so you, you took a month to, to summit that peak? Well, we set aside a month, which is kind of the typical amount that you, you do, but we ended up having really good weather on the way up. And we had a couple down days. We had to wait to fly in because you drive to uh, Talkeet in Alaska and then you fly in on a little bush plane with skis on it that lands you on the glacier. And so we had to wait a few days to get weather to fly in. And then the weather closed in again. So we had a, a day or two in base camp. But from the day we left base camp, we made it to the summit in six days because we were, we were really young and fit at the time. But the main thing is we had really good weather and they, we had a little CB radio that uh, the climbing rangers would get on and give the weather forecast every night at seven o'clock or something. So we'd always make sure we had that turned on and they just kept saying the high pressure system's holding. It's going to be another sunny, calm day tomorrow. So we just kept trying to push up. And then, uh, the weather looked like it was about to turn 
So we tried to make a dash for the summit and we, we made the summit, we made it back down to our high camp at 17,000 feet. And then we had this bright yellow mountaineering tent. So usually when you're in there, it's always just bright yellow in there. And, and, you know, that, that time of year in Alaska, it's light almost 24 hours a day. So we're always used to having this bright yellow tent, but we woke up the next morning after making the summit and it was all dark except for this little rectangle of yellow right at the very top of the tent. And we realized that the tent was almost completely buried in snow. Um, so we had to get out and dig out the tent, spent an extra day or two up there until the storm quit. But uh, so we timed it just right. We got pretty lucky with the weather. We, we had great weather on the way up and then the storm really nailed us after that. But uh, it was a good so trip. What- so what elevation does the plane drop you off at? About 7,000 feet. So you got a long, you got like basically 13,000 feet to climb then. Yeah. Like elevation wise. Wow. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's impressive. So on a trip like that, do you, do you see many other mountaineers? Is it pretty popular? Yeah. Or? yeah it's a pretty popular climb for sure. Um, so I did it with my brother. He's been my climbing partner on pretty much all of my climbs, the two of us, Jesse and, and, uh, so yeah, we were there and climbing it by ourselves. Most of the the climbs I think are guided, and so there'd be big guided groups that would uh, you'd sort of have to sometimes contend with on some of the you know steep pitches. But uh, but yeah, it was it was fairly busy. It definitely I've you know been on a lot of climbs that were a lot more of a wilderness experience. But it's uh, it's it's a big impressive mountain, so a lot of, it draws a lot of people there. So so what drew you to wanting to climb something like that? Like me, like I said, I grew up in Vancouver. I stared at grouse, and never once did I say, you know what, I want to climb up to the top of that. That's a good question. That's a hard one to answer. Yeah, I think it's just it's uh, I don't know. I don't know that I've ever actually come up with a good answer for that, except that it. You know, I I, I read a book about mountaineering one time about the the first winter ascent of Mount McKinley. They used to call it Mount Mount Denali now. Um, and he talked about a, a breed of fish that would, ha- it just had this compulsive need to jump out of whatever pond it was in and try and find the next pond. And sometimes the fish would just die and suffocate on the, on the shore, but sometimes it'd find a pond that was full of food to eat and paradise for that fish. And, you know, that, so the, the fish doesn't really know why it needs to jump out of that pond and try and see what's on the other side, but it just does. And I, that, that, I can sort of relate to that, I guess. I it, it's it's not something I can you know. There's not a lot of utility in climbing mountains. You'd be a lot better off. Yeah, it's it's doing a lot of other things. It's very very similar to when you ask somebody why they hunt, right? It's I I don't really know, but there's something that draws me to it. That connection that I get, that uh, that needing to be outdoors to to challenge myself and just all these things that you can't really articulate, right? It's just something deep inside says, I, I need to do this and I don't know why. Yeah. Yeah. One thing I will say though, is that that uh, a big thing that appeals to me about mount, both mountaineering and hunting is the the goal that you're working towards achieving. I think that's a big part of the appeal to me. I mm-hmm. think that when you wake up on either a mountaineering expedition or a big hunting trip, you know, from the moment you wake up, what you're trying to accomplish, you know, and you're every, everything you do is directed towards trying to accomplish that goal. And it sort of cuts through all the clutter of a lot of things that we do day to day, I think. And it's kind of refreshing to just have that single focus. Yeah, I agree with that. I think one of the things I like about Beat of the Mountains and, and, and I like climbing mountains too. I'm just not a technical climber. I wouldn't consider myself a mountaineer. I'm considering myself a hiker. Uh, and so it's a different sort of 
level of, of mountain exploration. But I think for me that, you know, the, a couple of things that, that probably uh, unite, you know, any, anything like that is, is that sense of exploration, you know, whether you're being dropped off at a lake and you're going on a big hunting expedition or you're going to, you know, climb up a mountain or explore a valley. It's, it's that sense of, you know, you're not really sure what you're going to see, you know, and, and what you're going to find. And I, I find that pretty exciting. Um, but yeah, I think it, I think one of the things like just to, to sort of read it, what Eli said, I think is the fact that so often in life, a lot of the things we do, we do because you sort of have to do them. You know, you, you, if you could do something else, you probably would, but you're doing what you're doing now because you have to do it, you know, whether it's work and I enjoy my job. There's, uh, you know, I, I enjoy what I do, but, uh, you know, you, you really don't have a lot of choice. You've got to be there and you've got to do it. And a lot of things you in life are like that. But I find when you're out in the mountains, you know, whether it be just, you know, hiking or hunting or, you know, with or fishing in the Alpine, that kind of thing, you're doing something that you really want to do. And I, I have a friend, Paul, who, who once said, you know, you know, you're happy when if wherever you are, a helicopter flew up to you and said, hey, hop on in, we'll take you to wherever else you want to go right now. And you, and you, you decline the ride in the helicopter, you know, you say, no, I'm, I'm fine right now, right where I am. And I think most often those times in my life, other than some, you know, good times with my family and things like that, I've been out in the mountains, you know, where I, I'm exactly where I want to be doing what I want to do. And, and, uh, unfettered by so many of the day-to-day things that, that we have to deal with. And yeah, I, so I, I can definitely relate. Yeah. Chasing, chasing the unknown, right? It's, uh, how many times have you been out there either hiking or driving or going up a hill in your case, Eli, either you say, no, over, just around the corner. I, I got to go just that little bit more because I don't know what's there. I, I do that every time. Every time. So we'll turn around at the next corner. No, but there's a corner still ahead of me. I, I got to keep exploring, right? Is that drop? Well, it's, it's it's hard to turn around sometimes. It is. Like you're, mm-hmm. You know, you're going to crest the next hill and it's getting kind of mm-hmm. late. And you're like, ah, but you just can't stop. You got to go. You just just have to see what's over the next ridge or, or a, around the next corner for sure. Yeah. And I, I think that's a great way to put it, right? It's you, you don't know. And it's that chasing the unknown of the outside and what's inside you. You're testing yourself every time you're outside, even if it's uh like I've done like real basic rock climbing on the smoke bluffs, right? They're, they're numbered like seven through 12 or whatever it is, right? Even if it's a, the most basic little thing you're doing that you've done a hundred times over, you're still challenging yourself because it's different each time. And I think that's, that's the, the commonality from this, this brief chat that we've had with Eli is we, I see that the, the mountaineering and the, and the, the hiking that he does to hunting, right? There's very, very similar commonality there. And I think that's pretty cool that most people wouldn't even see at face value, right? Yeah, there's definitely overlap when you're like with all these outdoor adventures. I think there's there's something that unites them all. There's some there's some spark there that that gets lit when you're out in the mountains or out in the wild country that mm-hmm. that I think that unless you've done it, it's sort of hard to uh, to maybe relate to it. But once, yeah. once you've done it, you just want more of it. Yeah. You know? Well, and yeah, and I, the thing I think about too is that I always like having something to look forward to. You know, I, I, I live a a great life. I have a wonderful family. I like my job, but it's still, you still kind of have the daily routine that you're doing, you know? And, uh, I, I always really like having something exciting to look forward to having an adventure on the horizon that you can sort of plan for and train for and prepare for. And, uh, and then once you start your trip, I like the feeling of having that story ahead of you that hasn't been written yet, you know? And, and like you said, it's the unknown. And I, I've, I've lately tried to make a conscious effort when I'm starting a trip to really kind of take a moment and, and absorb 
the fact that all the preparation and planning and training and travel is behind me because usually big trips like that, you know, you're, you're working on it for a year to get ready for it. And then when you're finally where you're going and your trip is beginning, I make a conscious effort now to, to actually just take a moment to appreciate the fact that the adventure is still ahead of me and the preparation is behind me. And, uh, and you're actually right there doing what you want to be doing. And the story hasn't been written yet. Anything could happen. You don't know what the result is going to be. And that that's a fun feeling. And then, you know, once you're done too, as much as I like all these adventures, I love coming back home and seeing my family, hugging my kids, sleeping in a soft bed, taking a warm shower, you know, just all the sort of things that it's easy to take for granted uh, in normal life. When you go away for a while and have some hardship and suffering and adventure, and you come back and appreciate all that stuff even more. Yeah, absolutely you do. I, I know when we got out of the bush, it was the all I could do was run into the hotel while we waited for the other guys to come out because we we turned and burned to, to Prince George. And it was, I, I ran into the hotel. I'm like, can I pay you for a shower? It was just like, I didn't even think about a shower the whole time I was in there. But the minute we landed, it was, oh God, I need a shower. I want a shower. Just a little bit of creature comforts. That, that yeah, familiarity. And the shower never, the shower never feels that good. No. It's when you're just coming out of the mountains. Ever. No, and I don't think anybody can understand that that hasn't been, you know, hiking the, through the mountains for 10 days. You know, you do that and a hot shower and a warm bed, like that's that's huge. And I know like many times after our big trips, Eli, the very first night we get to a civilization or sleeping hotel, it's it's that, that feeling of, we even comment on it, we actually don't have to worry about grizzlies tonight. You know, because yeah. everywhere, everywhere we go is is you know, densely popular with grizzlies, it seems. And so they're, they're just sort of an ever present potential threat, you know, so you never sleep. Well, I shouldn't say never, I sleep pretty well, but, uh, but, but it is that, always on your mind. You have to be it's, conscious it's about mind. what you're doing and, and yeah. what you're doing with your food mm-hmm. and yeah. where you're and, hiking. And it and could yeah. happen. I mean, at night, I mean, our, our very first podcast of this series, we, we interviewed a guy who got mauled by a grizzly with his partner in his tent. You know, they were sitting like laying there in the evening and, mm-hmm. and a grizzly mauled them, like tore through their tent at them. And so it, it happens, right? So it, it's sort of on your mind, but you get to a hotel and you're like, wow, I can actually just completely let my guard down. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it, it's something that we do take for granted. I mean, in, in modern civilization, you can fall into a deep sleep. Mm-hmm. Uh, just what, in most places at least, right? And uh, yeah, it's it just those little things that you come to appreciate when you actually immerse yourself in wild spaces that – that make you, you know, realize you fit into this whole system in a certain spot. Mm -hmm. And, and without our, you know, our technology and the, and the comforts that we've built up using that, you, you definitely feel a lot more immersed and, uh, which is great. And it's, it's addicting and, and, and you want to do it again and again, but, uh, I, I, like you know, I was saying, when it's over, when the big, when the big trips are over, that's when you truly appreciate how comfortable our lives are because they really are. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. That so I that's that's part of the appeal to me is the whole process. You know, having something to look forward to, enjoying living in the moment while you're doing it and then really appreciating the the comforts of home once you get back. So I just want to ask you like too, uh of all the mountaineering trips you've done, is there one that you would say stands out as being, you know, the most memorable for whatever reason? Well, there's several that are memorable for different reasons. I mean, I, I attempted Mount Everest. I didn't make the summit, but I, uh, I attempted it. And that was very memorable just because of the, the setting. You know, I'd never been to the Himalayas before, and the mountains are huge. And we traveled by Jeep through Tibet and uh, saw 
Tibetan yak herders that burn yak dung for firewood and they heat their tea with these little mirrored concave dishes that they hang their teapot in with it. So the sunshine heats their tea. And, and uh, so that, that whole travel experience was really amazing and the mountains are incredible over there. But, uh, and Denali was the, the biggest mountain in North America and uh, did that at a fairly young age. That was very memorable, but the most challenging mountain I climbed technically was probably the second time I climbed Mount Rainier on Liberty Ridge. And it was a fairly technical route to begin with, but the conditions that year were particularly difficult. And we, we ended up, we brought three ice screws for the, the, the two person team, my brother and I, which is apparently normally enough, but that year, the, the way that the, the Bergschrund was, which is the big crevasse at the top of the glacier where it separates from the mountain, it was the, the normal route was impassable. So we had to go up this fairly sheer ice section. And uh, so we ended up joining up with two other pairs of climbers there that each had a few ice screws. And so we didn't have enough screws to set up a proper anchor and belay. So we just we did what you call simul climbing where everybody climbs at once and you're all tied into the rope. And the first guy puts in a screw and then the next guy gets to it and unclips in front and then clips it behind him. And so it was, it was fairly thinly protected. I'm glad that nobody fell. It was a little bit sketchy. So that one really stands out in my mind because I got to the top of that climb and felt completely relieved that we, we made it up and down in one piece. Wow. Yeah, that's that's <laughs> yeah. that's not on my bucket list. I can tell you that. <laughs> no, no. Everest fascinates me. I've done a bunch of reading on it and videos and all the fun stuff. And how high up did you get? About twenty six thousand feet. And what stopped you? From Altitude sickness. Oh, like, okay. Yeah, yeah. I've seen some crazy videos of guys up in the death zone there, inside tents and all they can do is hold their oxygen masks on while the wind is kicking the crap out of them at two in the morning. And they, they're essentially waiting to die because if that weather doesn't turn, they're dead. Like it, that's, that's crazy. And that's the, the wind. The wind is the thing that I was most glad to be done with on Mount Everest. It was just constant wind. You just couldn't ever escape it, you know, and you're sleeping in a tent the whole time and it's flapping the nylon on the tent. And yeah. Um, yeah, so it was uh, it was such a relief to get back to civilization, stay in a hotel, and not have that just constant wind. Oh, I just bet. grates on you. I bet. Yeah, and did you'd be up around the Rainbow Valley there, wouldn't you? About twenty six, give or take. That's where all the bodies start piling up. We climbed it on the north side, okay. uh, of the mountain, which is not the, the standard route. But um, yeah, that it was it was high enough that it, the the air was getting pretty thin. My brother, who was my climbing partner lost vision in one eye from a retinal bleed. And then I got sick shortly after that. So that wow. was, that was kind of it for us. You got any plans to go back? That's a good question. It, <laughs> it definitely feels, it definitely feels a little bit unfinished for sure, but it's such a big expense and time away that uh, I, I feel lucky that I was able to take a crack at it. That was always my goal is to at least give it a try. So if I don't make it back, I can at least be happy with that. So speaking of potential future adventures, do you have anything planned here for the next few years that, that's uh, uh, noteworthy? Well, my wife, Andrea, and I are hoping to resume our Continental Divide Trail section hikes this summer. So we may look at doing that. And then, you know, lately, my big annual trip has been with you, Jonathan, on these northern British Columbia hunts, which are pretty amazing adventures. Um I, I've been talking with my friend Scott about potentially climbing a, a mountain called the Pigeon Spire in the Bugaboos. So we'll see. That might be on the agenda this summer, but that's not totally solidified yet. 
Oh, the, the bugaboos are sure gorgeous, though. You can, uh, well, I don't know if you've ever, did you ever see them from uh, Tea Creek up Hauser there? Yeah. Up the Eli? Yeah. You could, spectacular. You could, yeah. From my cabin, Steve, you, you can, if you spend about an hour on a, on okay. a four wheeler, you can get to a, up another little valley that gives you a view of these, uh, this, these group of mountains called the bugaboos and they're uh they they look out of place uh, relative to the other mountains in my at least in my opinion they look like they belong in patagonia or something they just they hmm. have a totally different look to them and hmm. uh, very very impressive yeah big sheer granite walls yeah wow. just, just something else yeah and and they're screaming at you climb me aren't they a little bit yeah it's hard it's hard not to and you see something like that although a lot of them are definitely above my technical ability wow that's awesome so I think we're coming up on an hour here, JP. That one yeah, quick. an hour went quick. Well, time flies when you're having fun. Yeah, time flies when you're not starving for oxygen in the death zone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I imagine that slows right down up there. So anyway, this has been a great conversation. I truly appreciate you coming on, Eli, for this uh, uh, this episode. And we look forward to chatting soon and hearing about all your adventures. Well, thanks for having me, guys. It's great talking to both of you. All right. Yeah, thanks, Eli. You guys have a good night. Take care.